Let us pray. So, Father, we do indeed ask on this Pentecost Sunday that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to work your will and your good pleasure and to mold and shape us into the people you have called us and are recreating us to be. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here this morning. Um, and thanks to all of you who um, got the memo, which I forgot to mention last Sunday, to wear red. And if you didn't wear red, you're really okay. It's all good. But um, just beautiful to see all the red out here on Pentecost Sunday. And we do have the Paschal candle today, and that's not because it's Pentecost, a little liturgical lesson here. It's because we have a baptism today. So the, the um, Paschal candle is extinguished after the gospel reading on Ascension Day, and then um, we use it for baptisms and funerals until next Easter Vigil. So it's out today because we have a baptism, two baptisms in this service, actually. So um, looking today at John chapter 14, the lectionary readings for Pentecost Sunday are the same for all three years in the lectionary cycle. Um, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, and then John chapter 14. And for the past three years, this is my fourth Pentecost Sunday here, I've preached from Acts chapter 2, but today I felt led very much to pray, or to preach rather, from John chapter 14. Looking at this reading from John's Gospel, it points to the role, if you will, of our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all that we commemorate this day. And indeed, it is an affirmation, this reading is, of our God who is three in one, which we'll talk about more next Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday as well. But today on Pentecost, we need to keep in mind that Pentecost can and should be much more than simply a commemoration on the church calendar. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is an essential part of God's plan for the continuation of Jesus' ministry and the evangelization of the world through the people of God. The power and fullness of the Holy Spirit is still essential for us to be used by God to accomplish His will and to accomplish His purposes. What we see here in John 14 is what I would call kind of a Trinitarian progression, if you will. Follow along with me. The disciples have been with Jesus, and through Jesus the Father has been revealed to them. Through the ministry of Jesus following his resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of the Father and his glorification, the Holy Spirit is now poured out in fullness of power on the day of Pentecost, equipping Christ's followers to continue his work on earth until he returns. And just as Jesus glorifies God the Father and reveals the heart and will of the Father through his incarnation is coming to earth as a man, so God the Holy Spirit always points to and glorifies Jesus. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit always points to and glorifies Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John 16, verses 14 through 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, speaking of the Spirit, and declare it to you. 
the true and genuine work and presence of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, always, did you hear that? Always points to and glorifies Jesus. So as we look at John chapter 14, verses 8 through 17 today, there are three main points of focus for us. The first is seeing the Father through Jesus in verses 8 through 11. Second, the call the call to us to continue Christ's work, verses 12 through 14. And then finally, God's provision of power to accomplish this work, verses 15 through 17. And once again, as for many Sundays here now, as we've looked at the upper room discourse, the setting for all of this is the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And as the disciples, other than Judas, who has already departed, are together with Jesus, Philip asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So let's talk a little bit about seeing the Father through Jesus. Jesus clearly states to, to them that through him, they do indeed see the Father. Not because this is some sort of den a denial of the Trinity and the distinction of persons within the Godhead. It's not that. That's something that you will hear some people point to the scripture and say, which is heresy, that somehow Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus. That's absolutely not true. That's not scriptural. That's a heresy uh, that is still present in, in the world today, but that was dealt with in the early church. It was known as modalism or Sabellianism, and the church refuted it in the first several centuries. But rather, it's because Jesus lived and moved in perfect unity with God the Father, and Jesus walked in perfect obedience to the Father's will. Additionally, to see Jesus is to see the heart of God the Father revealed. To see the revelation of God's love that he would go to such incredible lengths as to send his eternal son into the world to restore fallen humanity, humanity to right relationship with him. As we look at all of this this morning, it is so important, brothers and sisters, that we don't lose sight of this, that, that Jesus is a revelation of the heart of the Father toward us. That's why every Sunday as we come together and hear God's word preached, and then we, we confess our sins before the Eucharist, we, we confess our sins, and then the priest gives absolution, meaning the priest stands and declares what God has done on our behalf through Christ Jesus. And then we're reminded in what we know as the comfortable words of God's heart toward us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. These verses declare the heart of God the Father toward us through his son Christ Jesus. 
And then when those words are concluded, everyone stands and the, the priest who's celebrant says, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And that's speaking of the peace that we have with God that God offers us through Jesus Christ. The reality of the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of right and living relationship with God through Jesus. I like what Craig Keener has to say about this passage in his commentary on John. To see Jesus is to see the Father, not as if the Father and the Son are the same person, but because they are one. And here, because they dwell in one another so thoroughly, and Jesus remains so utterly dependent on the Father's will, that their character is indistinguishable as his works demonstrate. So we can indeed see the Father through Jesus And truly, Jesus and the Father are one because they're in unity. Second, we have the call to continue Christ's works. And here Jesus makes two astounding statements. First is this. Look at verse 12 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. How can this be? What exactly is Jesus saying? What Jesus says here was certainly a startling statement to the disciples in that moment. There are a few things to note here. First, this all connects with the power of the resurrected Jesus, as we've talked about frequently since Easter Sunday. This all grows out of the power of Christ's resurrection. Second, For what Jesus talks about here to happen will require the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in fullness, potentially in the life of every believer beginning on the day of Pentecost. And we'll come back to this in our third main point in a little while. But at the moment, we need to consider what Jesus means here by greater works. Passages such as this often immediately bring to mind the miraculous. And that is clearly part of what Jesus is speaking about here. But it is not all that he speaks of. Yes, Jesus did and he does empower and at times work miracles through his Holy Spirit-filled anointed followers. We see this throughout the record of the New Testament as well as down through church history to this very day. God still does miracles. But we need to remember Miracles are signs. They point to something greater. Miracles are not adequate or sufficient in themselves alone. They must be followed, supplemented, if you will, by a clear proclamation of the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel, who Jesus is and the new life he offers. This must remain central. It must remain front and center. That's what we see happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We have the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We have fire descending and then separating into two smaller tongues of fire and resting upon each of those believers gathered there. And they began to speak in other tongues, other unlearned languages, declaring the works of God. And the Jews from all over the region that were there for this harvest festival witnessed this. They heard them declaring the works of God in their language, and this got their attention. 
But then what follows? Peter steps up in this God-given moment and declares clearly who Jesus is and that Jesus is the one who's pouring out his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God upon these believers. And Peter declares to them the message of salvation and freedom and deliverance in Christ. It's what we see happening with the healing of the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3. After he's healed, Peter and John go with him to the portico, Solomon's portico in the temple, where they proclaim to all the people who knew this man and knew that he'd been miraculously healed because they'd seen him before his healing. And now, through that, they proclaim salvation through Christ to those there at the temple. The purpose of miracles is to glorify God. The purpose of miracles is to rivet people's attention. But then it must always be followed by a clear proclamation of the gospel. A proclamation of the saving, delivering power of Jesus Christ. In that moment that God has presented to make people ripe for the harvest. True and valid miracles always, did you hear that? Always point to Jesus. They don't point to a person. They don't point to a human being. And quite frankly, there's far too much of that in our culture and in the church where the focus shifts from Jesus to individuals regarded as miracle workers. Well, they're not working the miracles. Jesus, when God uses one of us to pray for someone, when God uses one of us to touch someone, to God be the glory. It's God doing the work through us. It's by his grace. It's by his working and not by us. A human should never be in the limelight because the miracle worker is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and he is the one who t- to receive all of the glory. And the greater work of signs or the miraculous is always superseded, if you will, by the greatest work, by people becoming true followers of Jesus Christ, by people coming into a living relationship and being set free through Jesus, being set free, forgiven, and transformed into the new creations and disciples of Jesus. God wills them to be by his grace and his transforming power. Indeed, what Jesus promised came true and continues to come true. Greater works did indeed follow. Greater works do indeed follow. And we see that because within a few months after his resurrection and ascension, far more men and women became believers than during the entire three years of Jesus' earthly ministry in Judea and Galilee. The book of Acts is a clear record of this. That great work, in greater measure indeed, did follow with the the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For all who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. We must never forget what F.F. Bruce notes in his commentary on this passage as well. The greater works which he now spoke uh, to them would still be his own works. Did you hear that? 
the greater works which he now spoke to them would still be his works. They would be Jesus' work in and through them. The second thing we see that Jesus says here is this. Look at verses 13 through 14 with me. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is probably one of the most misused and abused verses in all of Scripture, in all of the Bible. Because people often treat in the name of Jesus like some kind of a magic formula so that we can pray or ask anything in the name of Jesus, even something that's completely contrary to the heart and will of God, and somehow God will do that. And folks, that's nothing but outright paganism. It's something which ancient cultures, especially the Greeks, engaged in where there was some sort of magical power by invoking the name of a god or supernatural being. As if invoking a name makes whatever we want to happen come to pass. This is hardly what Jesus has in mind. And it is certainly not what the early Christians believed. This is not witchcraft. It's not superstition. If you question this this afternoon, just go home and read Acts chapter 19, the account of the sons of Siva. I think God's word will set us straight on that. To truly pray in Jesus' name is only the privilege and prerogative of those who know Christ, those who know Jesus, and who are walking in God's will. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray based on his merits, to pray based on who Jesus is, to pray as his representative, someone who is about his kingdom business. So if we're not about God's will and we're not about God's kingdom business, don't think praying in Jesus' name is going to make any difference. To truly pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accordance with what his name stands for. Proceeding from true faith and relationship with him and in a way that brings glory to Jesus. Again, to quote, quote Craig Keener, that's a tongue twister, quote Craig Keener. Get my tongue tied up on that one. He says this, praying in Jesus' name involves praying in keeping with his character and concerns and indeed in union with him. Let me read that again. Praying in Jesus' name involves prayer in keeping with his character and concerns and indeed in union with him. The great Christian reformer in England in the late 18th and early 19th century, William Wilberforce, wrote this. The title of Christian is a reproach to us if we turn ourselves away from him after whom we are named. The name of Jesus is not to be to us like Allah of the Mohammedans or like a talisman or an amulet worn on the arm as an external badge in the symbol of a profession thought to preserve one from evil by some mysterious and unintelligible potency. Instead, we should allow the name of Jesus to be engraved deeply on the heart, written there by the finger of God himself in everlasting characters. It is our sure and undoubted title to present peace 
and to future glory. There is indeed power in the name of Jesus. According to the heart and will of God the Father. And then finally, God's provision of his power to accomplish his work. Jesus promises them that he will give another helper. I will give you another helper. And the Greek word here for another is significant because the word indicates another helper of the same kind. Another helper who is God. Not a helper of a different kind, not a helper who's similar, but of the same kind, of the same essence. And this helper is God, God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit will give us greater love and fidelity to Christ and his kingdom and his kingdom purposes. The Holy Spirit of God is another paraclete, one who comes alongside, an advocate, a helper, a counselor, a comforter. And Jesus promises that he would, and indeed he has poured out his spirit. And even as Jesus dwelt in, abided in the Father, so now not only will the Spirit dwell in believers when they come to faith in Christ, but the Holy Spirit potentially moving forward from the day of Pentecost will fill and empower every single believer, every person who knows Christ in fullness to accomplish his purpose, just as he did in those believers at that outpouring on the day of Pentecost. I like what Andrew Wilson, Christian author, wrote in Christianity Today because he compares being filled with the Spirit like the sail of a ship. He writes, when you're sailing, is being filled with the wind an experience or a habit? Both. Catching the wind on a sailboat is clearly an experience. I vividly remember that first feeling of being seized and carried forward by a mighty power from elsewhere. But it is also a habit. If you don't put the sails up, pull the main sheet fast, or adjust the jib, you won't go anywhere, even if the wind is blowing powerfully. Sailing in that sense is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. You rely entirely on the external power to get you anywhere. Sailors never imagined themselves to be powering the boat by their own strength, but you also have to respond attentively to whatever the wind is doing, which comes through cultivating awareness, skills, and good habits. Being filled with the Spirit involves the same both and. We pursue the experience of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the language of filling and drenching, drinking and pouring. We rely entirely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than our own strength to get us anywhere. But we also develop habits. We respond attentively to what He is doing in and through us, a capacity that comes through awareness, skill, and practice. The late Christian author A.W. Tozier wrote a book that some of you may read entitled The Set of the Sail. And I think when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
It's both, yes, it is both that initial experience of filling that is not the same as salvation. It's a separate experience that God invites and calls each of us to. But then it's setting our sails so that 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 sail of our lives, the sail of our hearts internally can be filled with the Spirit of God and we can be directed and moved along and empowered by God. As St. Paul said, keep on being filled with the Spirit. So it's not an either or, it's a both end. Yes, we are filled, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, but then we must walk and continue to walk in that, to attune our hearts to the will of God, to set the sail of our lives, to fully capture the wind of the Spirit and where God is leading and directing and what God is doing. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us, this church, need that power to accomplish God's work and God's plan. This is God's design. Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit, the Comforter, once he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And we see this happen on the day of Pentecost. We see it continuing to happen throughout the book of Acts and down through church history as God's people open themselves to that mighty work of the Spirit so that we accomplish God's work, or rather, that's bad wording. God accomplishes his work through us through his means, the power of the Holy Spirit, not human strength, which is weakness, not the flesh, but the life of God himself flowing out through us to touch people. And yes, indeed, we will see God do wonderful works. And we will see God do the greatest work of all, setting people free and delivering them and bringing them into a living relationship with Christ. And we'll see that in measure beyond what we can imagine, just like those first disciples did on the day of Pentecost, because it's not we who are doing the work, but God who is doing the work through us, through his power, through his mighty work, and through his grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we have seen your heart through your Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. And just as Christ always points to your heart, so the Spirit whom Christ has poured out on us, beginning of the day of Pentecost, points to him, to his work, to his saving, delivering power. So Father, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time, Lord, may we throw our hearts and lives wide open to your working. And Spirit of God, we ask you to come in fullness of power to baptize and fill and refill and renew. Lord, that we would not try to do things in the weakness of the flesh, but that we would be filled with your presence, the presence of the living God, and Lord, that we would keep on being filled, that we would posture our lives, that we would attune our hearts and lives to your voice, that our sails may be set to capture the fullness of what you want to do through God the Holy Spirit in our lives and in this community. And Lord, we pray all in all of this, that Jesus would be lifted high 
that his name would be glorified and that many would come to know him whom to know is life eternal. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.